Section 21 of Fancies Versus Fads. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fancies Versus Fads by G.K. Chesterton. Section 21. The Prudery of the Feminists. In the ultimate and universal sense, I am astonished at the lack of astonishment. Starting from scratch, so to speak, we are all in the position of the first frog whose pious and compact prayer was, Lord, how you made me jump. Matthew Arnold told us to see life steadily and see it whole. But the flaw in his whole philosophy is that when we do see life whole, we do not see it steadily in Arnold's sense, but as a staggering prodigy of creation. There is a primeval light in which all stones are precious stones, a primeval darkness against which all flowers are as vivid as fireworks. Nevertheless, there is one kind of surprise that does surprise me, the more perhaps because it is not a true surprise but a supercilious fuss. There is a kind of man who not only claims his stone is the only pebble on the beach, but declares it must be the one and only philosopher's stone, because he is the one and only philosopher. He does not discover suddenly the sensational fact that grass is green. He discovers it very slowly, and proves it still more slowly, bringing us one blade of grass at a time. He is made haughty instead of humble by hitting on the obvious. The flowers do not make him open his eyes, but rather cover them with spectacles. And this is even more true of the weeds and thorns. Even his bad news is banal. A young man told me he had abandoned his Bible religion and vicarage environment at the withering touch of one line of Fitzgerald. The flower that once is blown forever dies. I vainly pointed out that the Bible or the English burial service could have told him that man cometh up as a flower and is cut down. If that were self-evidently final, there would never have been any Bibles or any vicarages. I do not see how the flower can be any more dead when a mower can cut it down merely because a botanist can cut it up. It should further be remembered that the belief in the soul, right or wrong, arose and flourished among men who knew all there is to know about cutting down, not unfrequently cutting each other down, with considerable vivacity. The physical fact of death, in a hundred horrid shapes, was more naked and less veiled in times of faith or superstition than in times of science or skepticism. Often, it was not merely those who had seen a man die, but those who had seen him rot, who were most certain that he was everlastingly alive. There is another case somewhat analogous to this discovery of the new disease of death. I am puzzled in somewhat the same way when I hear, as we often hear just now, somebody saying that he was formerly opposed to female suffrage, but was converted to it by the courage and patriotism shown by women in nursing and similar war work. Really, I do not wish to be superior in my turn, when I can only express my wonder in a question. But from what benighted dens can these people have crawled, that they did not know that women are brave? What horrible sort of women have they known all their lives? Where do they come from? Or, what is still a more opposite question, where do they think they come from? Do they think they fell from the moon? Or were really found under cabbage leaves? Or brought over by sea storks? Do they, as seems more likely, believe they were produced chemically by Mr. Sheffer on principles of biogenesis? Should we, any of us, be here at all if women were not brave? Are we not all trophies of that war and triumph? Does not every man stand on the earth like a graven statue as the monument of the valor of a woman? As a matter of fact, it is men, much more than women, who needed a war to redeem their reputation, and who have redeemed it. 
There was much more plausibility in the suspicion that the old torture of blood and iron would prove too much for a somewhat drugged and materialistic male population long estranged from it. I have always suspected that this doubt about manhood was the real sting in the strange sex quarrel and the meaning of the new and nervous tattoo about the unhappiness of women. Man, like the master builder, was suspected by the female intelligence of having lost his nerve for climbing that dizzy battle tower he had built in times gone by. In this, the war did certainly straighten out the sex tangle. But it did also make clear on how terrible a thread of tenure we hold our privileges, and even our pleasures. For even bridge parties and champagne suppers take place on the top of that toppling war tower. An hour can come when even a man who cared for nothing but bridge would have to defend it like Horatius or when the man who only lives for champagne would have to die for champagne, as certainly as thousands of French soldiers have died for that flat land of vines, when he would have to fight as hard for the wine as Jeanne d'Arc for oil of Reims. Just as civilization is guarded by potential war, so it is guarded by potential revolution. We ought never to indulge in either without extreme provocation, but we ought to be cured forever of the fancy that extreme provocation is impossible. Against the tyrant within, as against the barbarian without, every voter should be a potential volunteer. Thou goest with women, forget not thy whip, said the Prussian philosopher. And some such echo probably infected those who wanted a war to make them respect their wives and mothers. But there would really be a symbolic sense in saying, Thou goest with men, forget not thy sword. Men, coming to the council of the tribe, should sheathe their swords, but not surrender them. Now I am not going to talk about female suffrage at this time of day, but these were the elements upon which a fair and sane opposition to it were founded. These are the risks of real politics, and the woman was not called upon to run such a risk, for the very simple reason that she was already running another risk. It was not laws that fixed her in the family, it was the very nature of the family. If the family was a fact in any very full sense, and if popular rule was also a fact in any very full sense, it was simply physically impossible for the woman to play the same part in such politics as the man. The difficulty was only evaded because the democracy was not a free democracy, or the family not a free family. But whether this view was right or wrong, it is at least clear that the only honorable basis for any limitations of womanhood is the same as the basis of the respect for womanhood. It consisted in certain realities, which it may be undesirable to discuss, but is certainly even more undesirable to ignore. And my complaint against the more fussy feminists, so-called from their detestation of everything feminine, is that they do ignore these realities. I do not even propose the alternative of discussing them. On that point, I am myself content to be what some call conventional, and others civilized. I do not in the least demand that anyone should accept my own deduction from them. And I do not care a brass farthing what deduction anybody accepts from such a rag as modern ballot paper. But I do suggest that the peril with which one half of humanity is perpetually at war should be at least present in the minds of those who are perpetually bragging about breaking conventions, rending veils, violating antiquated taboos. And in nine cases out of ten, it seems to be quite absent from their minds. The mere fact of using the argument before mentioned of women's strength vindicated by war work, shows that it is absent from their minds. If this oddity, 
of the new obscurantism means rather that women have shown the moral courage and mental capacity needed for important concerns i am equally unable to summon up any surprise at the revelation nothing can well be more important than our own souls and bodies and they at their most delicate and determining period are almost always and almost entirely confided to women those who have been appointed as educational experts in every age are not surely a new order of priestesses. If it means that in a historic crisis all kinds of people must do all kinds of work, and that women are the more to be admired for doing work to which they are unaccustomed or even unsuited, it is a point which I should quite as easily concede. But if it means that in planning the foundations of a future society we should ignore the one eternal and incurable contrast in humanity, if it means that we may now go ahead gaily as if there were really no difference at all if it means as i read in a magazine today and as almost anyone may now read almost anywhere that if such and such work is bad for women it must be bad for men if it means that patriotic women in munition factories prove that any woman can be happy in any factories if in short it means that the huge and primeval facts of the family no longer block the way to a mere social assimilation and regimentation, then I say that the prospect is not one of liberty, but of perpetuation of the dreariest sort of humbug. It is not an emancipation. It is not even anarchy. It is simply prudery in the thoughts. It means that we have boulderized our brains as well as our books. It is every bit as senseless a surrender to superstitious decorum as it would be to force every woman to cut herself with a razor because it was not etiquette to admit that she cannot grow a beard. End of section 21.